This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena Trut. Today, the bureau under your bed. J. Edgar Hoover joined the FBI in 1919 when he was just 24. He stayed on until he died at the age of 77, and in the intervening half a century, he used the billions of tax dollars he received to transform the Bureau into a state-of-the-art police bureaucracy that promised to solve crimes in a scientific way. In order to do so, he hired an army of agents and subjected them to strict office policy. They had to wear a white shirt and dark suit, were forbidden from gaining weight, drinking coffee at work, or giving wet handshakes, and weren't even allowed to get married or divorced without first alerting the home office. Hoover also created a library of files on everyone he felt deserved one, from White House officials to labor and civil rights activists to members of the KKK, but always with special attention throughout his tenure to African Americans. The surveillance of African-American writers is what interested the literary historian William J. Maxwell, who decided to collect all the files he could find and see what he could learn about the FBI. He started by making a list of writers he suspected had been surveilled, then started filing Freedom of Information Act or FOIA requests, receiving back photocopies and scans if indeed there was such a file. In these government pages, he often found a play-by-play of where the writer had been, who they'd seen, what they'd talked about, what their novels or plays or poems were about, at least according to the FBI, and even their private or intimate correspondence often did not escape inclusion. It took Maxwell almost 10 years to go through it all and write the book, long enough to be assigned three different editors. The result is titled FBI's, how J. Edgar Hoover's ghost readers framed African-American literature. I can see how it took you that many years. I mean, yes. at the end, there's an appendix where you detail every uh, FOIA request that you submitted, and then yeah. there's a page count next to each of one. And so I amused myself yeah. adding them all up <laughs> because I was curious. And I came out to over 200,000 pages. Something like that. Yeah. Well, some of those pages repeat each other because when you're photocopying the contents of a file, it's every iteration. And so maybe a version was produced for another office within the FBI. That file will be appended to the main file. So there is a fair amount of repetition. But no, just assimilating the pages, right? Yeah. So I actually had these big plastic bins and I would be reading through these files um, and I would just throw various pages into the bins. You know, it, uh, this is how dumb I was initially. I, I didn't number the pages at the time. I actually had a research assistant mm-hmm. who's now a very distinguished professor of Indian American literature. But anyway, she, with a pencil, numbered the back of each of these files. This is before mm-hmm. we completely assimilated right, electronic research. So yeah. poor Christina. <laughs> <laughs> She's extremely polite and of almost infinite patience, but she would shake her fist after doing this stuff. So. <laughs> oh, wow. That's saying something. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I've only ever come across, you know, FOIA requests with journalism, really. Yes. And so as someone who's probably not learned this in school, you know, like how to do this, what was it like to file your first FOIA request? Do you remember? <laughs> Yeah, I think the first one I asked for was that of poet Claude McKay, um, whose Mm -hmm. complete poems I edited, oh, about five years before I started working on this. Um, You know, and FOIA requests weren't completely out of my wheelhouse, in part because, you know, I was a child of the 60s, I mean, literally a child during the 1960s. So I grew up both uh, worshiping the FBI, we were all fed this. There was a television program, I, you know, with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. on American Network Television, which a dashing FBI agent solves crimes every week. Uh-huh. Um, but then, you know, later on, as a teenager living through the sort of tail end of the the '60s and its aftermath in the '70s, the FBI became almost a kind of ritual enemy. And when the FOIA process was extended to the FBI in 1974, that was well known in countercultural circles. 
And so, you know, just being a sort of political being at the time, a FOIA request wasn't all that strange. And the other thing is, by the time I'm filing these requests in 2006, I don't believe the FBI is worried that much about its Cold War history any longer, certainly not in the same way. It's shifting to fight, you know, the infinite war on terror. Um, And I didn't feel like I was engaged in this, you know, terrible battle with the folks who processed FOIA requests at the FBI. Some of them became sort of friendly with me. And I've I've learned (laughs) subsequent to doing all this research that once in a while when someone, you know, asks for files on African-American literary and intellectual figures, the FBI actually recommends me as someone you should consult. So, I mean, you know, which is ironic and somewhat funny too, but yeah, you know, the FBI at times resembles a sort of vast university and its response to black writing. Right. And so as an academic and particularly a literary historian fascinated with the archive, used to working in the archive, I mean, I saw myself in strange ways in the FBI and perhaps vice versa. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that, that I thought was one of the most interesting things about the book is that what you say, you know, that the FBI was in a sense an academic uh, enterprise almost, right? It's not even exaggerated. Yeah. Well, you know, from the very beginning, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. when he's in his late teens, early 20s, works at the Library of Congress and is this progressive librarian He's really good at running offices and using new office techniques. He's a sort of you know, pioneering bureaucrat. So the FBI, among other things, from the beginning, is an archive. Yeah, and there's also, it, it reminded me almost of a Borges tale or something. You yeah, know, like some yes. Some sort of desire to sort of file and document every last little yes. scrap of paper that's written, you know? I think you're absolutely right, you know. It's the CIA that was occasionally called the mind of America, but definitely the FBI aspired to that level of understanding and control. And one of the first things that Hoover does when he's brought in to run the radical division in 1919 is just start acquiring radical publications, manifestos, documents, books, um, people who were swept up in the Palmer raids, I call them the Hoover raids of 1919 mm-hmm. and 1920, you know, one of the great civil liberties crises in American history. One of the things they complain about is how the FBI took all their paper from them, wow. <laughs> swept up their sets of anarchist theory and could never get them back. Hoover is really concerned to build this library of, of radical materials. So there is this desire to sort of master radicalism by sort of possessing its documentation. And it's also the case that when the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building was constructed. I think it opens uh-huh. in the early 1970s. It's especially sort of designed, engineered, and shored up to support the sheer weight of millions and millions of pieces of paper. Oh, wow. Um, From like a civil engineering perspective. I believe so. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it or you've probably walked by or you've ever been in, in D.C. because it's quite near the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh-huh. It's this big sort of 70s neo-brutalist structure of with a is. moat in front of it and rough concrete. I mean, the stuff <laughs> oh, we're, we're trying desperately to learn how to reappreciate that architecture. Sure, As sure. somebody who grew up with it, I can tell you it's not going to work. It doesn't age well. But anyway, um, you know, it... it if that's a library, it's the toughest yeah. and biggest library in world history, that's for sure. Yeah. It's interesting that you mention already the Palmer raids, or as you call them in your book, the Hoover mm-hmm. raids. Um, because after these raids, the FBI publishes its first big mm-hmm. report on African-American writers and presses titled Radicalism and Sedition. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, could you just sketch a little bit sort of what is going on at the time what was the government worried about yeah. what was the general mood at the time that the report came out of right yeah i think it's issued in the fall of 1919 directly after what historians call the red summer and it's a summer that's fascinatingly interestingly and disturbingly like our own early summer of 2020 yeah <laughs> so you know World War I has just wrapped up. Mm-hmm. So you have tens of thousands of troops coming home. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of African-Americans involved in the war, though not all of them were frontline soldiers. There were some who were, and they fought particularly heroically, but they're returning to segregated communities, and they're not only being discriminated against, but they're being lynched in uniform in certain places. Yeah. 
so it's a season of, of deep racial tension. You have the last waves of the so-called Spanish flu of 1918, 1919. Um, and people aren't really talking about that quite as much because it gets swamped by the sheer terror and losses of, of the war. Mm -hmm. And you have what you know was called at the time race rioting. Right now, we'd have a political discussion about whether it was race rioting or racial rebellion yeah. in which white terrorists largely swept into black communities from Texas to Chicago to Washington, D.C. Uh, but what was different this time out in the history of American racial conflict was that black neighborhoods organized their own self-defense. Yeah. And, you know, it was a moment when there were both fantasies and, you know, accurate guesses about the participation of various American radical groups and parties in that summer's uh, conflict. So in June of 1919, the Attorney General of the United States, A. Mitchell Palmer, his the front parlor of his home is blown up by an anarchist bomb. And there are other bombs that are successfully and unsuccessfully sent around D.C. to other high-level officials. So the American government itself feels under attack. There's, you know, so-called race rioting or rebellion in front of the White House yeah. during this point. And they shuffle young J. Edgar Hoover in, 24, young graduate of George Washington Law School, veteran of the Library of Congress, to put a stop to this kind of thing. And what are they fearful of? They're fearful of the conjunction of, you know, left-wing radicalism and black rebellion. Hmm. That is the major thing that J. Edgar Hoover is asked to quash. Right. That is so interesting because there, there is a lot of, in the report and throughout your book, like that seems one of the main mm -hmm. focuses, you know, that this preoccupation with yeah. communist sympathies, which is mm -hmm. also just more broadly described as anti-Americanism, which I think is sort of interesting in itself. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. Know? But could you tell me, is there a specific reason, let's say, why the FBI saw a link between African-American rebellion and communist mm -hmm. sympathies? Well, there are some actual links. Right? It's, not, it's not a pure fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, some of the best and most militant reporting about Black response to race rioting in 1919 is done by the first generation of Black publications that are interested in and supportive of the Russian Revolution. So there are publications out of New York, like The Crusader, which is the fruit of Black Caribbean radicals in New York. You have The Messenger which is edited in part by A. Philip Randolph, who became a mm. major civil rights force, an important black unionist who eventually helped to organize the March on Washington many years later. These folks are very interested in what the Russian Revolution and what early Soviet communism might give in a worldwide anti-colonial struggle against racism. Right. So when you look at that report, how many pages is mm -hmm. it, more or less, do you know? It's not that. It's like 26 pages long. It's about the size of an academic article. Right. Yeah. So, okay, 26 pages. It's excerpted in the New York Times, uh, yes. which I thought was surprising. It was also read on the floor of Congress, by the way. It oh, was wow. read as an exhibit into the congressional record. Interesting. It was not hidden. This was not a report meant to be hidden. And like from the very beginning, from this original document, radicalism and sedition among the Negroes in their publication. Yeah. Right. In a remarkable title. It right? is. Yeah. The idea is both to secretly extract this information and to make it an open secret to let, you know, those so-called Negroes creating so-called radicalism and sedition know that they are being watched, uh -huh. right? Right, right. It was not meant to be a secret. Right. Yeah, what I find so interesting also is that, you know, at the time, the Harlem Renaissance hasn't been officially called yet. Right. It seems like the white literary establishment was not paying any heed to writing by African-American writers. Not much. Not until the mid-1920s and the Negro Vogue the sort of well-publicized wing of the Harlem Renaissance makes it into mainstream journalism. Right. right? When Carl Van Vechten starts inspecting uptown, right? And yeah. you're asked to board the A-train and so on. That happens later. Um, in 1919, it seems like a popular interest in black letters is in a nadir. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, and that is also why it's, it's wild in a sense, you know, because even though the inspiration for the document comes from fear, basically, about yeah. what, what African-Americans at the time may be up to. Mm -hmm. But then also uh, throughout the document, you, you see that there is actually profound admiration 
and some sort of shock at their own admiration. Like, yes. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. These people are actually right. pretty smart, pretty well-spoken, <laughs> exactly. you know, like <laughs> they have a background of scholarship behind them. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember about finding those little bits of um, praise, actually? In a way, when I read that, I knew I had a book. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it illuminated something yeah. to me, right? That, you know, that there's the story of the civil liberties violation, right? Mm -hmm. And how quickly the FBI's attempt to surveil African-American letters turned into forms of state criminality. There's that story, and that's an important story. Yeah. I was interested, too, in how that criminality shaded into modes of exchange and admiration, trying to think seriously about the FBI as a kind of rival literary critic and even uh, writer of fictions, right? And, and you know, and I say that um, in a kind of concrete way when talking about radicalism and sedition, because the lead author of that report slash pamphlet slash exercise in literary criticism uh -huh. is a guy named Robert Adger Bowen, okay. um, white writer of dialect who slipped into the FBI as an older man, um, born to a very wealthy family with a history in relationship to shipping and slavery. He grew up on a series of large plantations near Clemson, South Carolina. Um, he gets a graduate degree from Cornell. Mm. And he, he sort of makes his bones as a young writer, editing and producing stories in Black dialect. Mm. So he's writing in a pseudo black voice he's engaged in an early form of literary minstrelsy when he meets the literature of 1919 the first wave we can say of the harlem renaissance mm -hmm. right it shifts from a kind of broken imitation of supposedly black english into standard english um, exhortation he's confronting his own literary antiquation um, and so he's both jealous as you are when the younger generation you know, you to go. Uh, but he, you know, but he's also struck with admiration. So did he actually grow up on a plantation? Yeah, or several. Wow. Yeah. His papers are at Clemson and they're, they're fascinating. They include the document that I believe his father imposed on the newly freed people on his plantation, which would be basically a series of rules for life on the plantation after freedom, which involved, you know, a strict schedule, which involved not letting strange freed people onto the plantation. He grew up in a world that was barely divorced from slavery. He was born in 1868. And one of the things he does as a young man when he realizes that some kind of proximity to black speech is becoming important in Southern writing, he goes out and he kind of acts as a song catcher, right, as the sort of, uh, you know, early ethnographic white explorer in African-American folklore. And he produces this little booklet of songs and sayings produced on his relatives' plantations. Um, wow. And this is the person who writes the FBI's first evaluation of African-American letters. I mean, that, that it's kind is of what amazing, is even more... It? It is amazing. But I, I, you know, I can say that um, one of the reasons that it was possible and interesting to write about him is that his personal library was huge and he kept these scrapbooks of his life and all of his diaries and he held on to every publication that he ever produced. And, you know, he's fired from the FBI in the mid-1920s when they don't need as, as many experts on the so-called Negro press, or at least they don't think so, mm. right? And they try to make him into a typical FBI agent in a fedora on the street. That doesn't work very well. This is a very literary <laughs> character. Um, so he goes home, you know, to South Carolina in 1926, and, you know, the family has tons of money, and he becomes a kind of literary gentleman of leisure. But one of the things he does is watch the FBI's sort of fame and cultural power grow with both admiration and resentment. Mm. And so he buys all of these books about the FBI. The most famous one is The FBI Story, which was almost an official institutional history, though it wasn't written by Hoover. And he, you know, annotates it incredibly carefully and he actually has tipped in sewn in editions here and there and he's arguing with J. Edgar Hoover with you know again from a position too of admiration um right you know while I was reading your book I was often wondering 
what possessed these men like these white men to spend basically every waking hour uh, you know looking at what african americans were doing yes well you know there were very few fbi agents who worked exclusively on Mm. black writing right there were fbi agents who kind of gravitated towards it right uh bowen is is one of those um i see bowen also his wider assignment was to look at the so-called subvert i keep saying so-called sorry Mm. the subversive and ethnic press so he supervises this office for the bureau in the late teens and early 20s in new york city it's the literary wing of the fbi right so of course it needs a new york office right like any good publisher um anyway they, you know, they sit down every day and they're reading, you know, what is being said in Slavic radical publications, what's going on in German socialist newspapers, because so much of American radicalism at the time was in the language of immigrants. Right. So that's part of what the office is doing, too. You know, there's one period, it's kind of anomalous and strange, in the, in the 1930s, there's not as much filing of black mm. letters as you might imagine. And that was, you know, that's the high water mark of American literary communism. So maybe they're more interested in Steinbeck and Mike Gold and the new masses and publications like that. But still, it's pretty continuous, this interest. It's not subject to a sense of, oh, okay, you know, there's been, (laughs) there's been this conflict, we now all have to verse ourselves, you know, I mean, thankfully, people are doing that this summer, for some good reason, (laughs) in some frankly corny ways as well you know as white literatures decide now that oh black books matter and maybe we should have been talking about this you know i say this as a white person who's been studying african-american literature for you know 50 years i'm not exaggerating to me is okay you have guys like Bo and yeah. you know w- w- white people who are for some reason interested in african-american activities um, right I, I also want to know did the fbi make any kind of efforts to hire you know black people who mm-hmm. have like some sort of deep knowledge that white people would lack i mean not as literary critics per se mm. but in order to help understand control and tamp down this early wave of black radicalism around world war one there are the fbi does recruit informants in harlem in particular um some of whom do things like work for the magazines the crusader and the messenger that i was talking about earlier mm. They actually have an advertising agent from one of those magazines, I'm forgetting his name, frankly, who also reports back to the FBI. Then I think from the 1920s through the end of the Hoover era, we're dealing with, you know, a couple of dozen black agents in a huge organization that contains Mm. thousands. Yeah. In the late 1960s, when the FBI is concerned with the black arts movement, with black power, with urban unrest, as it was called at the time, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of African-American informers who were recruited by the FBI. Some of them didn't really have a strong choice in the matter. Oh, wow. Well, there's there's an elaborate game that you can play as an informer, right? You may have to give up a certain amount of information to live freely. So would you give up the information of comrades, ex-comrades who have already been outed by others? Would you be willing to do that, right? Right. And so basically, when you think about those early informers at presses yes. and, and newspapers and such, you know, do you think that they were already in this kind of double bind that you described? Or, or were they also just informing in exchange for money? Some, or I mean, it depends. I'm, I was talking about more like sort of street level informants, right? Somebody who runs a grocery store in Harlem. Uh, That's yes. the kind of thing I was talking about. But if we're talking about the FBI's um, sources at American publishing houses and magazines. Some of them cooperated somewhat more willfully. So in the 40s and 50s, you know, different firms, uh, Bennett Cerf, Random House, I believe, Henry Holt, these folks were almost sort of publishing adjuncts of the FBI. I mean, they published lots of things, but anything that came in on questions of communism, anything that talked about the Bureau, Henry Holt would send 
to Hoover, right? Bennett Cerf wow. would send to. And so there was kind of active and willful participation in the larger project of American anti-communism among New York publishers. And so, okay, so for a guy like Holt, yeah. what do you think made him such a good student, you know, who wanted to just make sure that every little scrap of potentially... No, I, I, I don't recall that, I have to say. But there's a scholar named Claire Culleton who wrote an amazing mm. long piece on the relationship between the FBI and Henry Holt. And I know that enough editors at Henry Holt were used to this coordination with the FBI that one wrote to the director and said, I feel like I am an agent of the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. it's very close, right? I mean, you know, the anti-communism at its height in the United States, as distinct from McCarthyism, right, which is an important, maybe defining branch of anti-communism, uh, is a wide spectrum ideological project. There's lots of American liberals involved, right? Right. I mean, this is interesting to sort of focus on because, you know, one concept that I thought was, I mean... Uh, that really blew my mind more than anything in the book, which is saying something because the the whole book is 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 really a, a wild read. Uh, is this concept of the model citizen? Yeah. Who, who will write letters to the FBI for advice, like, oh, you know, <laughs> dear FBI, I'm a teacher at such and such school and such and such village. Just can you tell me a little bit about those interactions? Who were those people writing the FBI, and what were they concerned uh, about? Right. Well, Hoover becomes a popular celebrity. It's hard to imagine, right? Because he's not the most charismatic person in the world, right? But becomes a popular celebrity in the 1930s. And he's photographed dating Hollywood starlets. Um, so he reaches a form of fame in the 1930s that's hard for us mm -hmm. to remember. And at the time, he's a kind of symbol of the New Deal. I mean, he's a sort of, you know, gang fighting uh, exponent of the federal government's renewed powers, um, and so his powers are imagined to be vast. You have in the files of, of many of the black writers I've collected evidence that common citizens of all sorts from all parts of the country, from Texas to New England, ministers in Chicago, they are of different sort of racial origins. There are black writers, there are yeah. white writers. They imagine that J. Edgar Hoover is not just this powerful, charismatic figure, but someone who is a kind of court of appeals when it comes to the ideological character of black writing. Um, mm. And so they write these sometimes unhinged, sometimes very learned letters asking, like, as you were suggesting earlier, is it okay to allow Langston Youth to appear before my youth group? Um, when I'm assigning texts to my high school... Would it be okay to assign W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Does he make it or not? Is he a communist or not? Um, yeah. So it's almost as if, though people didn't know the contents of these secret files, they imagined that the FBI was an important scholarly resource. Yeah. When it came to the history of black writing. Yeah, and not just a scholarly resource, but also approachable, mm -hmm. that you could just write them and that they would reply, you know? Right. Well, Hoover, you know, one of the things that he's very canny about, he's very interested in publicity, which is one of the great sciences, so to speak, that emerges from World War I, mm -hmm. is making the FBI popular. And so he wants it known that he will sit up in his study late at night, handwriting answers to citizen queries about the FBI. Wow. The idea of the FBI as this approachable American resource, not only as the mind of America, but in certain weird ways as the heart of America, is something that Hoover wants to advertise. Right. So writing these people back, however kooky they seem to be, <laughs> is something that Hoover is really interested in. And there's a whole, you know, wing of the FBI that concentrates on this. You know, just like, you know, you write you write Justin Bieber and I assume that there's a dedicated <laughs> staff of of people who will send you a glossy, or maybe, I, I'm sure this is all done differently, but when I was growing, you know, you could write to your favorite rock star and you would yeah. get an eight by 10 picture back, right? Hoover made certain that that, that happened. Yeah. Um, and he would also include in these letters back his own pamphlets on various subjects, you know, secularism, breeder of crime. Oh, wow. you, know, you would get, in essence, the collected works of J. Edgar Hoover back if you wrote the Bureau. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting about the whole concept of the, you know, the model citizen, right? Yeah. Hoover is also that it sort of means that it was accepted as a good thing, right? That they were spying on U.S. citizens, you know? Yeah. Well, there was, you know, 
the left has always understood the centrality of the FBI. Right. It's just it wasn't winning that fight at the time. It takes to the 1960s to begin unmasking the FBI and shifting right its heroic status in American right. life. Um, so what I'm, I'm just trying to emphasize, not every common citizen in the United States thought the FBI was a wonderful thing, right? If you were the child of a Lithuanian radical whose library had been stolen by the FBI, you probably didn't yeah. love them. And my father was a, a working class guy, stevedore, who became a college history professor in a way that used to be a hell of a lot more common in American mm. life, right? The kind of thing that is increasingly... Mm. But um, he was a liberal who liked to occasionally bail out his radical students and friends. And he was absolutely certain he would be crushed that this wasn't the case. He was certain the FBI was after him. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that was not the I wrote away for his file, and unfortunately oh. it did not exist. But you, you did that you, after he passed away? After he passed away, yeah. Um, the last few years of his life, he wasn't really in shape to be asked about this, but yeah, of course. But, you know, having an FBI file has long been a badge of honor <laughs> on the American left. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing. There's nothing funny about this, really, actually, when you think about it. Right? <laughs> no, not, I know, but see, this is the kind of thing, you know, I, you know, I'm a very neurotic person. I have lots of worries. Mm. For some reason, this material does not make me paranoid or debilitated. I mean, and if you read through these files, you realize that they're quite imperfect, right? Uh -huh. The FBI might have attempted to become the mind of America, but it was a mind that had some memory problems, right? Yeah. I saw lots of evidence that the FBI did not destroy every literary career it interfered in. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as like reassuring. It's a low standard. Yeah, it's pretty low. But you know, what is also scary i mean i think that one of the scariest things about bureaucracies mm -hmm. is exactly that they're fallible is exactly that they get mm -hmm. things wrong but that they will still prosecute you or deny yeah. you uh whatever a passport right. on the basis of their own mistakes right and that was something that also that i didn't know that they would just on the individual level of writers that they would just mess with their passport application yeah that was that was serious business yeah. yes I mean, some of the harassment was almost comic, but if you are deprived of your ability to move, move about the world, which is one of the you know modern rights of citizenship, then that is deeply serious business. Um, and that habit of trying to interfere with the international travels of black writers is launched very early on in the early 1920s. And you know, I talk about Claude McKay. Yeah who's traveled to the Soviet Union for, I believe it was the fourth Congress of the Comintern, sent the FBI into a frenzy. They were checking shipping schedules. They were clipping the foreign press. They had sources in Latvia looking at, wow. at McKay. And they institute what was called a stop notice, which was a tool the FBI used throughout the 20th century, particularly against traveling American radicals, which meant that if McKay attempted to return to the United States, he would be subjected to heavy questioning that all of his materials would be sifted through. So there's this remarkable series of documents in McKay's file in which individual ports of entry in the United States are being alerted to you know, the possible infiltration of Claude McKay, colon, Negro poet, right? Um, so they're sent to Galveston, they're sent to New York City, they're sent to San Francisco, Portland, all of the sort of, you know, potential entry points. And that tool was used against James Baldwin later yes. on. So that is interesting too like the whole fbi presence in paris you know at the time when yeah. baldwin yeah. and richard wright and and the like were, were just hanging out right. in paris because they were sick of uh, american racism exactly and then even there they just weren't safe from it can you talk right which about is an irony that really depressed richard wright among others yeah who thought when he went over he said famously you know there's more freedom in one square mile in paris than in the whole of the united states but within four to five years it looks like the african-american community in exile is being recruited by various spy services but you know yeah and you know at the end of his life wright is insisting on his freedom not to inform on his neighbor which seems like a small thing. And they all write novels about it. 
Richard Wright has this novel, which has never been published, Island of Hallucination, which is about the sort of penetration of state espionage and then, you know, subsequently various forms of black paranoia into the supposed free zone of Paris Noir, Black Paris at the period. Mm. Yeah, that is very interesting also, you know, like the way in which writers let it be known that they know yes. in their poems, in their novels. What's your personal favorite of a writer doing that? Well, I mean, do you mind? I could read you something. Please. please. You know, one yeah. example, and that's this where the title of the book is derived, is from a poem that Richard Wright wrote in 1949 called The FBI Blues. <laughs> this is written right after he goes to Paris. Yeah. Um, it's called The FBI Blues. That old FBI tied a bell to my bed stall, said old FBI tied a bed to my bed stall. Each time I love my baby, government knows it all. Okay, so he's using a blues stanza, ironically. Mm. He's also talking about the fact that the FBI learned enough about the figures it was surveyed, that they understood their sexual lives in intimate ways, yeah. right? Something that filtered back into the emotional life of some of the people who were spied on. Um, I uh, woke up this morning, FBI under my bed. There it is again. Woke up this morning, FBI under my bed. Told me all I dreamed last night, every word I said, right? So that emphasizes the deep proximity of the FBI, its recording instruments and so on. But this idea that the FBI knows your own words before you do. Yeah. I mean, one phenomenon of being spied on is that it interferes with your own writerly communication with, with yourself. So, yeah. I mean, I admire these writers who dealt with this on top of everything else. Being a yeah. writer is hard enough, right? I know. I yeah. Know. But from the very beginning of this relationship, uh, African-American intellectuals, let it be known that they understand that there is disproportionate surveillance being applied to their literary community. So that document we were talking about earlier, Radicalism and Sedition Among the Negroes, James Weldon Johnson, mm -hmm. one of the great godfathers of the Harlem Renaissance, important poet, um, writes a review of radicalism. <laughs> And he's one of the ones who emphasizes, and he says, you know, the thing that impresses the writer of this report most of all is that, you know, Negro writers are capable of, right, great eloquence and understanding. He understands the irony, right, of, of Robert Edgerbo. Yeah. And the funny thing is, Bowen then, right, our white writer of dialect who has become an FBI agent, is very, very keen on clipping that review and he puts it in his scrapbook and he writes a private response to it. They're, they don't know each other's names in a sense, but they're in conversation from the very beginning. Well, I mean, two things. The 1960s happened, mm -hmm. and one specific action, a bunch of left activists, uh -huh. some of them, I think, formerly associated with the SDS and other groups, raid an FBI office in Pennsylvania. This happens in the early 1970s, maybe 1971, though I'll, I'll have to look that up. And they have concrete evidence. It's almost like video of a policeman, let's put it that way, choking someone. Yeah. They get concrete written evidence of the COINTEL programs against American mm -hmm. ethnic radicals. And they publish this stuff, tens of thousands of pages. Um, that begins to turn the tide. And then another thing happens right afterwards in 1972, which is that J. Edgar Hoover dies. Right. Okay. <laughs> it was the only yeah. way he was ever going to be taken out of the headship of the FBI because he had so much information on so many people. Not even Richard Nixon could stomach the idea that Hoover would be fired. <laughs> you know, but you know, let's just say that Nixon didn't shed a tear, even though they supposedly shared the same kind of anti-communist ideology and anti-radical um, vision. Hoover had to die for this to end because Hoover was assumed to be in control of embarrassing information about pretty much anyone in the American government. 
But when he does, and you know, the ideologies shift, and then by the mid-1970s, there are major congressional committees that investigate CIA and FBI excesses. They were called the Church and Pike uh, Committees, mm-hmm. and all of this information begins to pour out. That's when this kind of comes to an end, yeah. Yeah. I have a question, more like a personal question. You you said earlier that you've been studying African-American studies or literature for yeah. 50 years. Well, I'm 58, so that's a bit of an exaggeration. Sure. But yes. okay. So how did I get involved with this kind of thing? Yeah, I just want to know, like, what initially made you interested in sort of focusing yeah. on Yeah, well, there are a lot of different forces. Um, you know, my parents, particularly my father, were, you know, very deeply involved with the civil rights movement. So in a sense, I'm a civil rights baby, right? A white civil rights baby. There, there are a bunch uh-huh. of us. And, you know, and the world I was growing up in was one in which King and Malcolm X and their successes in the 1970s were just central figures in the culture. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in, in a... The first town in the United States, Teaneck, New Jersey, largely grew up there, that had voluntarily integrated its school system, which didn't immediately produce a post-racial paradise. It did not do that. But, you know, I went to school and learned in an integrated world, right? Had black teachers. One of my most influential teachers in college was Amiri Baraka, who did a semester at Columbia when I was a young person there. And then later, I had the good fortune of taking a class at Duke with Henry Louis Gates. So mm. I kept being lucky enough to study with some of the most interesting figures yeah. who had made this tradition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working on questions uh, black, it just seemed like part of being, you know, a young, alive person at, at, at that time. Um, you know, it just seems natural to me to work on what, what seems to be still the center of the American story, right? I mean, our finest culture comes from various forms of interracial exchange, right? That's why American music is so good, right? It's also where we keep screwing up and tearing ourselves apart and destroying the best of the country. So it just seems to me the most important thing we could ever work on, whoever we are. You know, earlier you were talking about the things that you have in common with the people at the Hoover FBI, you know, the first, of course, uh, an interest in literary criticism, but also like, yeah, like you said, that archival yeah. fever or, or archive sickness. Yeah. So have you ever thought about whether you have this in common with the FBI too, which is, yeah, like a, a, a as a white person, oh, fascination kind of, uh, with African-Americans. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would like to think it's a little bit, I mean, you know, I, I'm, wouldn't say that it's utterly different. I mean, it's, others would have to judge, but I think one difference is I would like to think that the kinds of literary historical information I'm making are available are, you know, largely in the service of liberation. The other thing is, you know, I'm involved in conversations with and have been instructed by African-American intellectuals the entirety of my career. I mean, I, I live in surprisingly interracial world of African-American cultural yeah. historians. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I learn from those folks. And if I screw up, they tell me I have screwed up and they write articles about that and they write reviews mm. of the book. So it's, it's in public, right? My engagement is being made public. It's not, you know... <laughs> private fascination though you know i can't completely abstract my own psychology yeah i mean i'm asking you because um how to put this okay i'm gonna put it in a in a in a i'm gonna go for be it clear yeah this about is important. what i mean it is important because yeah. i think as a fellow white person uh i think there's yeah. a certain sentimentalism that i have i'll just put it personally so that you can you can yeah. take from that what you think fits that I think I yeah. have when it comes to reading stories from history, for instance, involving African-Americans. Because the sentimental part, I think, is is where as a white person, you identify with the black person. You don't identify with, say, the white institution that was oppressing them or the white yeah. police force that was subjected well, I can't, to violence. I, can't, I would n- never want to separate myself entirely from that form of white institutional power. I mean, not because it's a source of my authority, but because I would not presume to think that I'm not made by it, shaped by it, and in- enjoyed by it. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? I, I, this is not like some new sporting interest, right? On my, I mean, it's just I've lived in a lot of interracial worlds. Uh-huh. 
in conditions of both, you know, friendship and enmity and difficult. It's just, I'm not sentimental about race in America. Uh-huh. Let's put it that way. I'm really not. Um, you know, I grew up in a very unusual, t- and like when people were really trying mm-hmm. in a, certain American suburbs to make this work right. Yeah. Live an interracial life that would nonetheless involve cultural pluralism. You know, my mother's Sicilian and we didn't give up on the idea of being Italian. Uh-huh. We had pasta and espresso and, you know, long arguments mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but what I mean to say is, you know, I think that there was less of a strict sense as there is now of sort of racial property lines. Uh, and it was uh, when I was in, in graduate school and coming up as a scholar of American and African-American literature, the emphasis was on multicultural possibility and exchange. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a moment that's been smashed, you know, not by some form of intellectual failure, but by all of the ways in which we have failed along questions of race, you know, in American life. Yeah. Now, there's another thing, too, that I think is really important to say, um, you know, this should be on the record. I have never been hired as an African-Americanist. I know that's hard to believe, but, you know, I've had three academic jobs in my life. I've always been hired as an Americanist, which means I have never taken someone's slot. Yep. <laughs> right? And I have, you know, I have been involved. In, I'm sounding like somebody involved in fierce self-justification. I guess I am. But, you know, I, you know I've been involved with the hiring of lots of young black scholars, yeah. right, over the years. And I'm in an African-American studies department here at, at Washington University in which, you know, I'm one of like two or three white people mm-hmm. in a much larger field, you know, with people from sociology and anthropology and other... Li- the person who hired me here, Gerald Early, is a major black literary critic and essayist, mm-hmm. right? So um, I do believe that African-Americans need to control and be at the head of black scholarship. Yeah. But I'm, I'm you know, I am trying to contribute and I'm not going to contribute from a position of sentimentality. Yeah. No, that's a great answer. That's a really great answer. Well, And so my question then is actually more... Um, you just alluded to this already in your answer. Okay. You were saying, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but I think you used the word uh, racial property lines. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that there is more of an idea today than maybe in the 60s about, well, me as yeah. a white person, what can I write about? You know, me yeah. as a black person, what can I write about? Right. That you yeah. don't just with the same sort of belief in multicultural mutual acceptance that anyone can write about anyone. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I mean, I think anyone who writes about these materials has a special obligation to know what they are talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, watching 10 videos, uh, inhaling like uh, three novels by Toni Morrison does not qualify you as an expert on African-American literary life. And unfortunately, there's so much of that, yeah. right? Um, that it makes perfect sense to me that particularly African-American, they're just sick of that. You know what I mean? So it's also true that, I mean, any country that could elect Donald Trump, right, deserves racial property lines. Let's put it that way. There's a sense, too, that, you know, white Americans are irredeemable now, right? And I can't, it's really hard to disagree, you know? Um, I see it in my younger students, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. I just know. I just see. I, I see this shift, right? I see it too. Mm-hmm. I see it too in non-black students who are really wary. They want mm-hmm. to know. They want to study, but they're really wary about engaging intellectually and critically mm-hmm. with African American literature. Um, they're worried they don't have the right to do that. And the right I would like to give them is the right to be informed about that material, not to judge it right. or to think that they can produce it outright without you know serious study and dialogue um but of course they need to you know reach this material not in pure sentiment right but but as intellectuals well okay but here's the thing you know i think a similar debate is happening in journalism right 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 right. i'm sure i'm sure uh, an older generation is saying we have to uphold the standards of journalism as long as we are doing good journalism upholding you know the standards of objectivity and thorough reporting then anyone can write about anything uh yeah that doesn't matter and then a younger generation says well objectivity what does that really mean like yeah exactly who, you know yeah. isn't that something that is uh, synonymous almost with whiteness you know because that's kind yeah. of the accepted norm that no one talks about right so what is objectivity even and so i i want to ask you the same thing like within uh, academia like you know what would you say 
to that criticism that you can't really ever um, not have the blind spots that you have. Uh, oh, I'm sure as... I have blind spots. The main thing is, though, if you're engaged in a scholarly conversation, someone will mm -hmm. come and point out the blind spots. But I also think that I have some spaces of vision that had to do with the fact that I collected 200,000 pages of materials that went yeah. through it, you know, while reading the work of and talking to lots of black scholars. The other thing, too, is I would not presume pure objectivity. Okay. I would like to believe that the material has empirical substantiation, is argued logically and well. But I am not presuming to transcend all forms of race and issue godlike pronouncements about the truth of American racial history. That's not what I'm talking about. I see myself as contributing to a wide um, series of arguments and knowledges. Um, right. And the other part of the book that is like, you can't understand white institutional life in the United States without understanding the shaping presence of black people, right? And black yes. history. What, one of the basic claims of this book is the FBI, famously white bread, right? You've got the black suit and you've got the white shirt and you look like a reservoir dog, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, that organization mm -hmm. wouldn't have been what it was without its war and admiration with African-American letters. I mean, that, that's one of the things I'm talking about, right? Whiteness in the United States, institutional whiteness is produced through engagements with blackness that are both fantastical and actual. Yeah. But I mean, that is what I think I took away from your book, you know, is that I felt like I understood something about white America yeah. better for having read a book about the surveillance of African-American writers. That's good. That's what it was intended to do. And that's what I most thoroughly believe about this. Um, But again, I'm also not presuming to have the final objective word on this. Someone's going to come in and argue with me, and they have. You know what I mean? William J. Maxwell is the author of FBI's, which came out from Princeton University Press in 2015, and which has a companion website where you can read through some of the actual FBI files on African American writers. Just Google FBI's eyes digital archive. He also wrote New Negro Old Left about the involvement of African-American writers in the pro-Soviet left and edited the first comprehensive collection of poetry by Harlem and West Indian Renaissance pioneer Claude McKay titled Complete Poems as well as McKay's long-lost novel Romance in Marseille which came out in February of this year and teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. To learn more about the poets the FBI surveilled, check out the FBI Digital Archive as well as the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena Bogut, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.